one of the things I really like about Nepal, and now we're moving towards the, the teaching part of today, is that it's helping the Old Testament come to life for me. Um, Langley is nothing like Israel was a couple thousand years ago. Um, we know that. And I feel like there's a lot in the Bible that we miss because Langley is absolutely nothing like the Bible 2,000 years ago. We have a good cerebral knowledge. We can read history books, but we don't experience it. We don't, there's so much that's missing. Whereas in Nepal, Nepal's actually quite similar to um, Israel 2,000 years ago. It's a pretty dry climate. You have subsistence agriculture. You've got people who are pretty desperate often enough. Um, you've got idol worship. There's so many parallels to um, yeah, to the, to the biblical world, especially the Old Testament. And you find that in some cultures, the Old Testament really is very, very important to them. There's a lot of emphasis on it, just because they understand it so much better than the New Testament. So, for example, take something like drought. Um, very few of us are farmers, save a few of us. And so we have a, you know, we have a concept of drought. It means you know, we don't have water, we don't have rain, typically. Um, the crops may not do well. And so we all know that, but none of us have ever experienced the absolute panic, the gripping panic when the rains... You know, you, in Nepal especially, you expect them to come at a certain time. And if they don't come, it's panic. And if they come later, and if they still don't come, and you're waiting and you're waiting, and the panic gets greater and greater, and it's not just that your crops are going to fail. If your crops fail, you don't eat. If you don't eat, you know, then what do you do? Um, you might sell a daughter into prostitution. That's a very viable choice there. Um, you might sell off your land, you might take out a ridiculous loan, can't pay off the loan, you lose your land, and it just keeps going. You've actually got a whole class of people who are bonded laborers and servants because of this type of thing. And so when you read the word drought in the Bible, we think, you know, you know we see like a tumbleweed like blowing across our mind. And it's like, it's so much more than that. Like, to actually experience drought and to know people who have been sold into slavery because of a drought, you know, when you read that kind of thing in the Old Testament, it means so much more. And so today's passage, we're talking about Cain and Abel. Um, we're talking about first fruits. And um, I would say that definitely has some things to do. There's some insights, I feel like, from Nepal that I've gained that I want to share with you guys. Um, yeah, from Langley, from a fairly urban environment where we, we are not subsistence farmers. So we're going to read from Genesis 4 today. Um, that's probably page 4 in your Bible. I'm going to read the whole passage just so that we uh, get the whole thing. Um, yeah, look for themes while I read. I'm going to preach today a little bit like um, they would in Nepal. You basically start at the top of the passage and you just work your way through it. And when you get to the end, you've gotten to the end. And hopefully you've gleaned something from it as you go. So if you're looking for three alliterated points, you're not going to get them at all. So let's read. Um, we're starting at yeah, chapter 4, verse 1. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked the, his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? 
The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. That's as far as we're going. So in this first part, there's a lot of expectations, the first two, two verses. We basically have, at this point in the world, we have God, we have Satan, we have Adam, and we have Eve. And we have the mention of someone who's going to come and crush the serpent's head. And that is supposed to be the seed of Adam and Eve. And so we have four people, four players, and we have this person who is to come. And now Eve is pregnant. So there's a very good chance that she thinks that this child inside of her will be this person who will crush the serpent's head, who will defeat Satan once and for all. So it's a huge expectation. Um, it's not, you know, it's, she has no guarantee that it will be that, that offspring of hers that will crush the serpent's head. But there's a, this expectation that it could be. It could be her son who will basically take away the sin and to finally defeat Satan that they, Adam and Eve, brought into the world just a chapter earlier. It's also, if you can imagine being Adam and Eve, the excitement and expectation you would have to teach your kids what you just learned. I mean, you are the first people. You basically lived in heaven. You walked with God. You were in a, a place without sin. Um, you had this incredible environment around you, and then you, introduced, you helped basically introduce sin into the world. It was because of you that the world has now fallen. Think of the lessons that you would have, and now you have kids, and now it's time to teach them. Huge expectations. And that last expectation, I would say, is um, you know very little about childbirth. Adam came from dirt. Um, your wife came from your ribs, and now your belly's growing. And you think, my goodness, where do babies come from? Like, we've got three very different options here. And you think about, like, the absolute, well... Okay, and that's all you know. Maybe you've seen animals have babies at this point. Um, yeah, and the only thing you know about birth is that God promised you it was going to be really painful. And he actually said that to you, like, this is going to hurt. And that's all you know about it. And God has promised you that. Incredible fear, incredible loneliness, probably, they would go through. I, you know, we have babies here. Um, we just had some babies. There's enough fear as it is in a hospital with ridiculously overtrained people. I think when our babies were born, there's like seven people, eight people in the room, all of them with many degrees and many skills. And then you go back to Eve, and she's alone, more or less. She's got Adam, who may not even believe that she's pregnant because he's never seen a baby come into the world that way. Um, and you just... It reminds me of the ladies in Nepal as well. Um, they typically give birth by themselves, or maybe their sister-in-law, who may only be 15 or 16, will be in a cow shed with them. And they give birth on the ground, and because they're richly impure, they will stay there for, I think it's is it 11 days? Give me a nod. It's 11 days. that They will stay there without washing, typically. Um, and they sit there with their baby, and they're not allowed to have nutritious food because that's taboo as well. And you think of the fear, you think of the loneliness, you think of just like, oh my goodness. Like, and that most readers would probably read that here. And then Eve says something very appropriate. With the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Yes. You know, with all those odds stacked against you, sitting on the floor by yourself, having a baby in the dark, very much alone, um, and it was successful, you'd say yes. You know, I can definitely attribute this to the Lord. 
So she gives birth to Cain, and then she gives birth to Abel. Um, right away, we get into the story. So the stage is set now. We have Abel. Um, we'll start with Cain. He works the soil. Um, remember, we do not have F1 hybrids at this point. We do not have fertilizer at this point. When we say work the soil, it truly means he worked the soil. Um, where I lived in Tibet, the ladies would break apart the earth um, with these huge mallets, these giant wooden mallets, because the earth would be very clumpy. And it would get, I think it was probably too much clay in the soil, and it was just huge masses. And they would literally break it with these giant mallets, like acres of ground with a mallet by hand. So when I think of working the soil, I think, yes, Cain probably worked the soil. He had many things um, against him in that sense. He was definitely living out the curse that God had um, mentioned to Adam in the previous chapter. So then we have Abel. He keeps flocks. In the Bible and in most cultures, that's the job for the youngest, and that fits in this story. Um, he's the youngest in many cultures as well, especially in Nepal. That's where the simple people work. If, you're, if something happens, let's say trauma in childbirth, your minds maybe, if you're just, yeah, if you're not the cleverest, you tend to sh watch the animals just because it takes a little bit less, less brain power to do that. It's also a very dirty job. Um, you're typically away from your home. You're away from... You're often up in the fields, in the pastures, the high pastures. It's a tough job. Um, it's for the dirty, it's for the young, it's for the simple. And most people would read that into that. I think the important thing here is that both these jobs are very, very fully dependent on God. Um, they're, you know, Abel is dependent on grass. If you have animals, you're dependent on grass. Everything boils down to having grass. You, know, you need the rain, and you know that your rain is coming from God. For Cain, he needs the rain for his crops. Both, both of those would be attributed to the Creator God. So incredibly dependent. And I feel like as, as a society and as individuals, we tend to worship what we perceive. Or de where we tend to worship what we think we're dependent upon. Um, look at cultures all over the world. They have rain gods. They have sun gods. They worship whatever it is that they think that they are dependent upon. In the West, um, we've moved away from a lot of that stuff. We've moved away from agriculture. Um, which is very much dependent on God, and I think that, you know, we can draw some interesting conclusions there as well. Um, and we, we, you know, we talk about how we're so independent in the West. Um, so, I, you know, we do, we, in a sense, we worship ourselves here now, I would say, um, just given the amount of time and money we spend and effort on ourselves as individuals. But in this sense, we have these people who re recognize their dependence on God, and they come with worship to Him. And that's where we get into Genesis 4, 4, yeah, Verse 4, um, it says here, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. So it's a good chance that Cain and Abel were instructed by either Adam and Eve or maybe God himself that there was some sort of worship that should happen. You know, they're supposed to bring something forth um, to him. And that would, the fact that they're bringing forth offerings and at roughly the same time would be indi indicative of that. But now we get to the crux of the passage and the part that's hard to understand. I mean, this is the first time worship is mentioned in the Bible and you'd think it'd be maybe a little bit more clear. And we see worship going very well for someone and we see worship going very poorly for someone. And so the big question is, why was Cain's offering not accepted? Um, it's a very good question. I mean, if worship is so important, which is incredible, it is, you know, shouldn't it be more clear? Shouldn't we know, you know, why was Cain's offering not accepted? Um, and there's different schools of thought on this, and I'm going to give two of them. They both could be right. Um, I'll side with one of them. Side with whatever side you feel is the best. Um, the first is that no blood was shed 
in Cain's offering. Many people would say that this was a sin offering. Abel, Abel killed an animal that was sinless, and in that sense, his sins were atoned for. There's this substitutionary death principle happening here. Um, we see that in chapter 3. God basically decides to cover the shame of um, Adam and Eve and kills animals and clothes them with skins. And so that's the very first substitutionary death, and that's a principle. That's an idea that goes all the way through the Bible up until Jesus, who is the final sacrifice, and then we talk about living sacrifices afterwards. It's a very, very common theme all the way through. And so many people would say, Cain brought grain. Grain does not bleed. You know, there was no death. Therefore, it was not accepted. Abel, on the other hand, killed an animal. Blood was shed for his sins. Therefore, he was forgiven. And that might be true. Um, that might be the reason why Cain's offering was not accepted. The other commonly thought of um, idea behind this passage is the idea of first fruits. And it seems to me that the emphasis lies on the first fruits. Um, it says here that Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Um, and it doesn't say what Cain did, if it was his first fruits or not. And so there's kind of a, a glaring hole there. And I'd say because it very specifically mentions first fruits, uh, firstborn, and the fat portions of those firstborn, we're talking about the issue of first fruits here. So this is one of those things that because I live in Nepal, I feel like I'm starting to gain a little bit more of an understanding of what are first fruits. Um, in the West, I would say, you know, we think, okay, we, every, we all deal with money. Money is our currency. Money comes in. Um, tithing is a biblical principle. We take off whatever percent, you know, 10%, and we, you know, when we save the rest. And I think when I thought of first fruits initially, I would say, yeah, that, that's first fruits. That's what first fruits in today's culture looks like and should look like. And I think it's more than that, though. If you look at in the subsistence agriculture, you look at people who are completely dependent upon what they grow and the animals that they have, first fruits is a lot more than just that. So I want to talk a little bit about that this morning. Um, I'm going to have a glass, some water first. So what's the significance of livestock and the offering of firstborn? If you run livestock, I run bees, which are kind of like livestock. They're smaller, though. Um, <laughs> So I'll try to, I, I don't know much about stock at all, but from what I've read, your firstborn are very, very important to you. Like with our money, the first 10% and the next 10%, you know, there's not a lot of difference. They're both the same amount, essentially. The value is the same amount. But here, the firstborn is, it's so much more than that. It's, chances are it's your breeding stock for the following year. It's going to be your strongest animal. It's likely going to be your best. If it was born in the spring, which is when firstborn often are, and it's the first part of the spring, you know, you've got the mother who's been producing milk and can, you know, basically nourish that, that firstborn far better than, a, than, a, than an animal that was born during the dry season or the cold season or whatnot. So you have, there's a far greater chance that that firstborn is actually going to make it around the whole season, if you know what I mean. Because, you know, in the agricultural world, you have seasons, and there's seasons of plenty and there's seasons of not plenty, um, especially in the subsistence agricultural world. And so you have this idea that your firstborn is very, very valuable. Um, there's a good chance that it's your breeder for the coming. And so in, many people would say um, you give, you, you'd breed and then you'd give out of, after you do all your multiplication, then you'd give your animal away. But instead, you're giving some of your best, the first. It's also the animal that has the best chance of actually making it through the season. Um, I keep bees. And I know in the beekeeping world, bees, they have two types of reproduction. You have reproduction at like the bee level. You have queens basically laying eggs. 
Um, and then you have reproduction at the colony level, basically the colony splitting and dividing and swarms leaving the mother colony. Well, the mother actually leaves with the first swarm. Your first swarm is incredibly valuable. Um, it has a chance of actually making honey and making it through the next winter. Um, you can also divide it because it's going to be the strongest. Your last swarm of the season is essentially garbage. Um, there's almost no point in keeping it. There's, it's not even worth your effort catching it, which you know, it only takes an hour or whatever to actually catch a swarm. And so for me, it makes sense. It's like, yes, the firstborn, it's, it's so much more. To give your first fruits is to rely on God. It's extremely sacrificial. You're proving your dependence on him. You know you need those first things. And yet you're saying, no, God, I depend on you. I want to give those to you. I'm not going to, after I, you know, multiply my flocks or keep all my bees and divide them, then I'm going to give something to you. No. It's like, God, this is important to me. The world knows it's important to me. And yet it's yours. I am dependent on you. In Joomla, where we live, um, we have cold. We live at 8,000 feet. Um, it's pretty cold and dry. We do have monsoons. And people there are, again, subsistence agriculturalists. If you don't grow it, you don't eat it. Um, if there's a drought, you have serious problems. Um, and so you, you grow through your season. You store as much as you can, and then comes winter. And hopefully it's not a long winter. Um, yeah, and you see if you survive, basically. Um, come spring, um, before your crops are actually harvested, you can have really, really lean times. And um, it can be really tough. You start to eat sting nettle. Um, you start to eat just stuff that normally you would not eat. Um, you just, yeah, you basically get desperate. And you start to eat, you know, the nasty, nasty potatoes from last year that you buried in the ground, and eventually those run out. And you're just waiting and waiting until you finally get your first crop. And you want that first crop so bad. Now, Colleen and I, we're not subsistence farmers. We live um, among subsistence farmers. Um, and so we don't have that same panic that they would feel, but we've definitely felt it. Like when we arrived in Joomla in, when we arrived, May? We arrived early May. In the entire area that we lived, there was one cabbage for sale. That's all the fruits and vegetables you could get. Now, Colleen is pregnant, trying to put on weight, trying to feed little babies inside of her. It's like, what? There's only one cabbage in this entire place. And you long for fruits and vegetables. Like, you have never longed for fruits and vegetables in your life. Like, you want them so badly. And there's this one nasty cabbage from a year ago sitting there in the bazaar, like, mocking you. And you just, yeah. And finally, you know, spring is, you know, things are starting to happen. You've got your winter barley. It start, you know, everything's starting to come. And finally, you know, apples, apricots. We've got it all. We just don't have it then. And finally, you know, it fruits. It's harvest time. And you want that stuff so bad. Like, we were eating apples, like, when they're still, like, this big. Like, it was sad. <laughs> and finally, you know, the apple comes. You've had, you know, it's the perfect blend of acid and sweetness. You take it off the tree. That's your first fruit right there. That is what you want so badly. It's not, necess it's not 10%. It's not just that you're giving it to God. You depend on it. You want it so bad. There's nothing you want more than those first fruits. And, for, and, that's, and we're not starving. You know, yeah, there's things we want. And we can always get out of there if things get really ugly. But for them, you know, they may be coming out of a famine. And they're first fruits. And that's first fruits. You're coming out of a famine. Or it's something that you're dependent upon for your following season. And then you're giving that to God. So that would be what I would say is that your first fruits are either desire of your last season. Your or it is the hope for the coming season. It's extremely sacrificial. It creates this worshipful dependence on God because you're depending on him. You want it badly. Your body needs it or your bank account needs it. 
Everything is geared towards that thing, and you're like, no, God, I'm dependent on you. I'm giving that to you. So in this issue of Cain and Abel, um, it seems like the emphasis is not actually on the gift so much, but on the attitude of the giver. It takes a lot to give of your first fruits. It's a really, um, yeah, I would say that's the heart of the matter. It's the attitude of the giver and what he is giving in this context. Um, and if you step back a bit from the passage and the idea of first fruits, we see that Cain is essentially practicing religion. He's going through motions. His heart's not really in it. Um, at least his heart may kind of be in it, maybe for the wrong reasons. But obviously his attitude is not there. And we have Abel who's actually practicing worship. Um, and we see one go horribly wrong. Well, you know, it goes horribly right in a sense for Abel because he gets killed for it. And um, horribly wrong for Cain. So we have this, this, this tension between religion and actual worship that we're seeing in this passage. Where Cain's religion is basically just a mockery or a shadow of what it should have been. And it's interesting, God talks to him about this. He, you know, the story really is about Cain. It has really nothing, very little to do with Abel. Um, and God talks to Cain. And the emphasis moves away from the offering to Cain himself. It said, he said, God says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? He's not talking about the offering anymore. He's talking about you. Will you not be accepted? Um, that's interesting because the emphasis moves quite quickly away from the offering to the individual and his acceptance. Um, again, it's not that God needs our money. It's not like if God doesn't get that 10% or whatever that portion that you decide to give him, God's not going bankrupt anytime soon. Like it's... It's silly to think of him in those terms, to kind of box him in in that way. He wants us. And what does that mean? It means to be dependent on him. And how do we become dependent on him? That's for us to decide. You know, how do we give in such a way that we truly are dependent on him? We're not giving after we multiply or after we do the math in our head. Um, that's what I feel is at the heart of this passage. That's um, kind of the main theme. But the story keeps going, um, so we're going to keep moving as well. In the poly... God asks Cain, Kina tinko muk It's like, why is your face so dark? Like, what happened to you? And God, in his graciousness, is giving Cain another chance to have another go at this. Cain um, refuses. If you were from that culture or from a Nepali culture, you would mar- you'd be really, you'd be really interesting to note that God is actually interacting with these people, especially sinful people. Um, things have gone wrong. And instead of just getting blasted, you actually have a God who is living. He's not an idol. He is living. He's interacting with his people, and he's addressing an issue here. Um, and he's incredibly gracious in that. This, this is the first time sin is mentioned. Obviously, we have sin earlier, but this is the first time it's actually mentioned by name. And God talks about sin. I think there's, um, there's something to be learned here. God personifies sin. Um, I'll read it for you. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. It's interesting that God paints the picture of sin as an animal basically stalking us. Um, Sin isn't passive. We probably don't have to go chasing after it. Um, It's a very active agent. If we ourselves are passive, we'll probably be mastered by it, I think is the idea behind this. Um, Yeah. And it goes on. Cain does not... um, yeah, decides against mastering sin. Um, and we have the first murder of the Bible. 
I think this is the part that most of us remember of, the, of this passage very clearly. You know, Cain and Abel, it's a story of murder. It's a story of murder, but it's a lot more than that. It's about worship, and there's some other themes here as well. And again, we have an incredibly gracious God. You know, in Genesis 9, he talks, God talks about, um, some would say capital punishment. Basically, you, you know, you need to account for your lifeblood and for the lifeblood of others. Cain goes and he kills um, his brother Abel. It's interesting, it takes place in a field. Again, this makes sense. Basically, that means it's premeditated. You can't, no one can hear you yell or cry if you're in a field. Um, in Deuteronomy 22, there's separate punishments for crimes committed in fields. Um, and in Nepal, if you want to do something nasty to someone, you do it in a field because it's a secret place. In the village, everybody knows absolutely everything. Um, so you have this aspect of premeditated murder and an incredibly gracious God who has basically chased after Cain and given him chances after chances, and Cain has denied all of those. So now we get into the last bit of the chapter, and this is the part that I think us in Langley or anyways in the West, we would kind of glaze over. But this is an incredibly powerful ending. Like this is, there's a whole other theme here happening at the, ending, at the end of this chapter or at the end of this story. It's incredibly powerful. And the theme is land. Now it seems a bit anticlimactic. But if you're a farmer, if you're an agri- agrarian, if part of an agrarian society, what an incredible ending to this story. And, it's, and then, but for us it's like, oh, land, and then, you know, we, well, we don't usually see the word land, but it's mentioned actually seven times here, earth, ground, or land. And that's how the story ends, which seems in some ways very strange. But um, if you think of it, when your life is centered on farming, and then God says your life is going to be like a continual drought, you know, it's over for you in a sense. You know, your sense of place that you had because of your land, the fact that your whole life is dependent upon what you bring up from that land, everything is centered around that. And this would be very well understood in most cultures, that this is a really, really big and powerful ending. Because God is basically saying, I am going to either bless you or curse you through your interaction with the land. In this case, it's a curse. Um, And that's a theme that gets repeated over and over through the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament through the lens of land, through this, this idea of land, you just see that over and over of people searching for the promised land, of not getting it, of wandering, of just of wanting that sense of place and how important it is to them. And for most of the society, most people in this world, um, this would make a lot of sense that God is using the land basically as a curse or as a way to interact um, with His people. So I'm not going to go into that much more than that. It's for yourself if you want to read it um, and think about that and read the rest of the Old Testament with the idea of land as a, as a major theme. I read a commentary on this part of Genesis, and the, the guy was saying something along the lines of, picture yourself, uh, not picture yourself, picture Cain, you know, he's surly, he's angry, he's jealous, he's all these things, and as this stuff builds up in him, he becomes kind of a, a worse and worse character, and in the end, he commits murder. And then you think of Abel, Abel, gentle, loves playing with lambs, his mother loves him, you know, this very, very different type of character. And he kind of played them off each other, and yeah, maybe, maybe that's how, how it was. I have no idea. But I came away thinking, you know what, maybe, maybe you and I were Cain, and maybe we're also Abel. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, yeah, I think maybe that's, that's a good way of kind of taking this story and applying it to our lives. 
there's this crazy tension between Cain and Abel in this story. And we have kind of the, we have Abel who is faultless. We have Cain who is not faultless. He is extremely bad. And Abel who is extremely good. And none of, neither of us are, are those people. We're a composite of them. So if we think of ourselves of a, as a composite of Cain and Abel, and that tension between them, we come away with feeling like, yeah, we are the story, you and I. We all have this choice of either religion of just going through motions, of making a mockery of our relationship with God, or we have the option of true worship. And then we bring in this idea of, you know, what is this true worship? What is worshipful dependence on God and this idea of first fruits? And that's something I feel like, as an application, you know, I can't tell you what it is. or It's something that comes from within. You know, what, is, what does it mean to depend on God? How can we worship him and depend on him in one, in one thing? Um, like giving of our first fruits. And it's not just money. It's so much more than that. Um, you know, what can we give to God that would show us that we are truly, truly dependent on him? That thing we long for the most or that thing that we, we covet the most or the thing that we know will bring us our security. Can we give that to God? I was in Austria once. Um, I was in this, I think it was called Upward Bound. We played in the mountains and learned about God for six weeks. It was very good. And my leader said, Andrew, if there's anything that you can do that will bring you closer to God, anything you can sacrifice, is probably worth it. It is worth it. It's absolutely worth it. And to use that lens and that filter when we make decisions, when we live our life, when we try to glorify him, um, yeah, it's a powerful tool. It's a powerful thing. So like Cain and Abel, we, if, we, if we think of ourselves as Cain and Abel, we have this incredible choice before us. We have religion. We have true worship. Um, we have the tension between the two that reside in all of us. So that's what, um, yeah, that's what I have to share with you this morning. Thanks for listening.